This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. And I got to say, this feels, Tim, like a really good headline that a U.S. vaccine surge is coming. Yeah, it does. Uh, Drew Armstrong and Tom Randall wrote about this, and it's gotten a lot of attention because right now the U.S. is administering 1.6 million doses a day, and it's been constrained by supply. But Mm -hmm. that could soon change. Yeah, let's bring in Drew to talk about it. He's Bloomberg News U.S. Senior Editor for U.S. Healthcare uh, here at Bloomberg, and he joins us on the phone in New York City. Hey, Drew, good to have you here with us. So it feels like a good headline, is it? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, like I, I've been uh, I've been trained by the last year to be a bit of a pessimist. I have to say when stuff could go wrong, it has gone wrong. Um, and I, I, we approached this story with a good deal of skepticism, I will say. Um, you know, but what we what we're saying here is we took a very close look at what the companies that are manufacturing vaccine have promised about their contractual obligations, uh, obligations to deliver vaccine that they have said that they will meet and then some additional um, delivery timelines uh, that have been broken out by them basically did the math and said, you know, if they keep the promises that they have said that they're going to keep, we are in for a major boost in uh, vaccine doses that are available in this country. And, and, and frankly, may have, you know, almost more than I think we, you know, we may need by July if everything goes well. OK, if everything goes well, a key caveat there, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, uh, when we looked at when we ran the numbers right now, the U.S. is distributing somewhere between, you know, in recent weeks, 10 to 15 million doses a week. Um, by the time we get to March, we're looking at 25 million a week in April and May. Sorry, 20 million a week in March, 25 million a week in April and May and 30 million a week in June. All of that depends on these vaccine manufacturers you know, not having some major unforeseen uh, you know, manufacturing issue. They're not being some unforeseen significant side effect, um, you know, distribution, bottlenecks, all of those things. There's plenty of stuff that can still go wrong. This is a model that is not a guarantee. But, you know, from what we've seen, and these are conservative companies that tend not to promise things that they don't think that they can deliver, this is good news. Did you say side effect? Yeah, I, listen, you know, these vaccines have been approved under an emergency use authorization. They've been approved, they've been cleared for use, I should say, you know, on a limited period of safety observation and you know the reason that it is approved under an emergency use authorization is because you don't have the usual six months to follow up that you would like to have so you know you never know is is something going to emerge later on that we don't know about now right now that doesn't appear to be the case from all of the data we follow but i think you know with anything like this the point of these eua um, authorizations is to keep an open mind for that possibility and be ready for it and watching for it i gotta ask you so if we're gonna have vaccines from Moderna, from Pfizer, from J&J, would you take, would you be okay taking any of them? You know, I I think the advice that has been given by anybody who is a a professional in this field is, you know, if you get, if someone offers you a vaccine right now, take it. Um, (laughs) But you know what I'm saying, that in terms of the efficacy and so on. 
I, I think if you look at the efficacy, you know, you see the 95% numbers for Pfizer and Moderna. Keep in mind that those were tested in an environment where we did not have any of these new variants. J&J was tested in a more variant-rich environment, which probably degrades the efficacy of some of, the, of their vaccines lately. You know, these are not perfect apples-to-apples comparisons. You know, the J&J shot has other advantages. It's a one-dose vaccine, um, which is certainly something that, you know, gets you closer to immunity. Uh, you know, you complete that series much sooner. You complete it as soon as you have gotten the, gotten the shot. A couple of weeks later, probably have some immunity built up. So, you know, I, I think we're, we're in a world right now where if someone came to my house and said, hey, are you ready to be vaccinated? I wouldn't be particularly picky about which one I was getting. Yeah, and hopefully you'd call me and tell me to get over there and get a vaccine, too. <laughs> I would appreciate that, Drew. Um, hey, Drew, so these numbers are, are looking very good from, from a supply perspective. But I'm wondering if the U.S. has the infrastructure right now. Do we have enough people to actually administer this many shots? Do we have enough syringes? Do we have enough needles? Uh, do we have enough freezers to store them? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we have seen on the ground and it made us a little more confident in writing this story was that in addition to the supply really beginning to pick up in the coming weeks and months, you have seen a lot of noises coming out of the states and from the federal government that if you piece them together, really amount to a significant expansion of the you know, boots on the ground administration pipeline, the capacity to get doses into arms. Um, you know, San Francisco, they opened up the football stadium and said they can do 15,000 doses a day. In Delaware, FEMA is setting up a pop-up vaccination site that will do 3,000 doses a day for six weeks. And there's not that many people in Delaware, so you don't need a permanent thing of that size. Um, New York uh, City has said they could do half a million doses a week, I believe if they had sufficient supply. Michigan, earlier this month, they testified before Congress. They said, we could do 80,000 doses a day if you, have, if, we, if you guys gave us enough vaccine. By our numbers, they tend to, they've peaked out around 50,000 doses a day. It's been lower than that recently because of uh, storms and, and presumably some supply disruptions because of those storms. So there is a lot of capacity out there in the country to get shots into arms. We have been supply constrained for the last weeks. If I look at the number of vaccines that are being delivered out there into the country, it's enough to basically do around, you know, a million and a half or maybe a little bit more doses a day. And that's exactly where our administration numbers are right now. So hey, we're in a supply ceiling world. Drew, just really quickly, 15 seconds here. So based on your projections or Bloomberg projections by end of summer, we're all vaccinated if we want it. If people will get the vaccine, which is a whole other bigger question. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're going to have to have you back to uh, talk about that, Drew. We know we will, right? Drew Armstrong, Senior Editor for U.S. Healthcare at Bloomberg News, on the phone in New York City. Check him out on Twitter at ArmstrongDrew and check him out at Bloomberg.com as well. So, Tim, among our most read stories on the Bloomberg, you actually mentioned this on our call, our planning call. And this is about Apple in discussions with multiple suppliers of self-driving car sensors. They're known as LiDAR, according to those in the know. Yeah, look, this is a really big deal. It was such a big deal, yes. in fact, that we kind of threw out the entire top of our show when we knew that Ed was about to publish this story. And we had Ed be the lead to talk about um, this development when it comes to Apple and self-driving cars. So let's bring him in. Ed Ludlow follows the auto uh, area for us here at Bloomberg News, among other things. He joins us uh, on the phone, actually from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Hey, Ed. So Hello. Hello. So what is Apple up to? Yeah, so... According to sources, Apple is talking to a number of 
sensor makers, you know, principally focused on LiDAR. And, and it's important because, you know, there's been a lot of reporting recently around Apple's car project and them working towards a self-driving car. And, and the general consensus, the wisdom across the automotive and, and AI industries is that LiDAR is just such a core part of what will enable cars to drive themselves. You know, it's a laser sensor that can give the, the sort of most accurate and richest digital picture of the world around the car. You know, there's different approaches, different automakers, different startups use a different blend of sensors. Some are very LiDAR heavy, some are very camera and radar heavy and apple's put a lot of work into developing their own but the fact that they're even talking to suppliers shows they've got a little way to go on their self-driving car prospects and also it's kind of admission that you know they're looking to the, the the companies that are expert in this field so ed you mentioned that different companies have different approaches when it comes to autonomous driving self-driving um tesla does not use lidar right yeah, so Tesla's consumer cars, of which you can see on public roads all around the world, have a camera-heavy system, a series of cameras around the outside of the vehicle, and that is how the Tesla car detects and interprets the world around it. There's a lot more than that goes into that when it comes to self-driving, right? And and a, a big part of it is the software, the artificial intelligence, the the semiconductors, the system integration. But Tesla is at odds with the rest of the industry. And it kind of sets us up for a nice debate. It's one reason why Wall Street analysts, market commentators are so interested in Apple's entry into a, the car market, because Apple has some very clear competency in software. You know, our smartphones, our iPhones are very smart, something we take for granted. And if it's able to get its act together, along with the billions and billions of dollars of cash it's got in the bank, then it, it could on paper be a very serious player in a world of self-driving cars eventually. But as we've reported previously and based on today's story, you, you know, the, the feeling is that Apple is many years away from that car being ready. Hmm. But they've also, you know, come out in the past, we're working on a car, then backed off of it. Yes. Is there something different, Ed, this time around? So in 2019, Apple kind of reset its car program. You know, we reported in the last couple of weeks that Apple had held talks with automakers, including Hyundai and Kia. In those, in that case specifically of those two names, those talks were on hold. It's talking with other automakers. It's invested heavily, as I said, on the software side. It has a lot of talent working internally on this. But I think I've said this line to you dozens of times, Carol. <laughs> Building prototypes is very easy. Getting a very complicated electric and self-driving vehicle that can be mass-produced is very hard. And, and our latest reporting and the sources we're speaking to basically say Apple is still very much in R&D phase, and it's working out how this vehicle eventually gets built. It looks like it will outsource to an automotive partner. Remember, the iPhone is assembled not by Apple, but by Foxconn. Good point. Um, and you know, all of the signs tell us that the approach that Apple takes, whatever it, whenever this happens, whatever happens, it will be very similar. That the Apple kind of comes up with the brains and the design of the beast, but it's actually manufactured by those that can do it best, car makers. Look, Tesla may be in a good place right now, but if you are thinking about how difficult it is to do this, look no further than, you know, Tesla's last decade, which has been very bumpy. 
to get where it is right now. Hey, Ed, what's the deal with the robo-taxi technology that, that Apple has been testing uh, on roads in California for a few years? Yeah, and this comes back to the whole LiDAR question. That it's all Our reporting suggests Apple hasn't even settled on a LiDAR yet. And if you compare Apple's testing here in California to the likes of Cruise, which is owned by General Motors, or Waymo, owned by Google, those guys are very far ahead in their testing compared to Apple. It's a measurement of miles per disengagement. In other words, how many miles can their test vehicles drive before a human has to intervene or before the system shuts down because it doesn't think it's safe? Apple is making progress, but on that metric, which has flaws, it's not a perfect metric, but it's the only one we've got. Apple is not able to drive as many miles before a disengagement as Cruise and Waymo are. And and, and the whole point going back to LiDAR is that Cruise and Waymo have a sensor suite. They have software. They have a system that they are testing and constantly building on. But based on the reporting that we've done, Apple's not quite there with its system. It doesn't know what its best sensor is. It doesn't know what its best blend of LiDAR is. And it has a lot more testing to do, which gives us some sense of how far away they really are. It's interesting, too. And let's remind everybody, right, that they weren't first out to market with a cell phone. And yet look at where they are. (laughs) It's an innovation story, right? No one doubts Apple's competency in those areas of software. And I don't think anyone doubts their bank account either and their (laughs) command of the global supply chain. And and if you read Wall Street notes, that's why we take this seriously. So, Ed, what is an Apple Apple developed car look like? How much does it cost? What is the final product? A lot of this is hypothesis from the part of of pundits, market commentators. You know, the the reporting that we've done basically says that it is a luxury product, that that the autonomy and self-driving part is the differentiator. You know, the speculation is that this won't be a normal car that you park in your driveway. But that is what Apple does, right? All we can go on is what Apple does, and that is sell to the middle and upper classes here in the United States and China with a luxury high-end product. Mm. And, and you know, my take, my read on what I'm hearing is that the car would reflect that. Don't park it in your driveway. Okay, now <laughs> yeah. I'm curious. Is it hovering <laughs> above well, my you, house? You, you know, maybe like as part of a fleet, maybe oh, it's a okay. shared car, maybe as part of a community, who knows? But yeah. that's something that Tesla's talked about as well, right? The robo-taxi fleet. Yeah. Um, I'm happy parking my my little SUV in the garage for now. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Ed, congratulations. Uh, Nice scoop. Ed Ludlow and the team, auto reporter at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So I want to get right to our next guest, Paul Krugman. He is back with us, Nobel laureate, economist, New York Times columnist, City University of New York, distinguished professor of economics. He's author of many, many books. And his latest book, now out in paper book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. He is joining us on the phone in Princeton, New Jersey. And he also, by the way, tweeted out that he just got his second vaccine, COVID vaccine today. Uh, Paul, it is great to have you here back on on Bloomberg. How are you? Uh, I'm a little weary. I think there's a little bit of the second day effect of the of the vaccine, but I'm fine. Okay, so you are feeling a little bit. We've heard that from a fair amount of people, so you do feel a little yeah. something. Yeah, it, it, it's fine. It, uh, the water is fine. Uh, jump in. If <laughs> we're, we're, I'm ready. We're ready and eager. <laughs> so, yeah. Paul, let's talk about kind of uh, this world where we are. We, we're going to talk about your book in a moment. But I do want to ask you, when you look at the U.S. economy, the impact of COVID, there are some economic reports that do feel like things are certainly getting better. Labor market's still tough. How do you see the U.S. economy? 
I think we still have another six months of rough times because it is very hard to do normal business when people are rightfully still afraid of, 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 of COVID. And so we're going to be a pandemic-depressed economy uh, for well past the middle of this year. But I'm actually I'm quite optimistic about after that. I think we, are, we don't have the same kind of uh, overhang of excessive debts and so on that we had after the last crisis. We are apparently on the verge of getting an adequate uh, economic relief package. So I think we're going to have a probably going to be feeling pretty optimistic by this time next year. Well, that's that's some that's some good news. Um, what about when it comes to the labor market specifically? How do we get millions of Americans who lost their job during this pandemic back to work? I think that's going to be a lot easier than people imagine. Uh, the The job losses are concentrated. Uh, there are a lot of it's not all there, but a lot of the job losses are concentrated in sectors that are basically shut down because of pandemic risks. And once we have widespread vaccination, you know, this is all assuming that the variants don't get ahead of us and, and we lose control of the pandemic again. But once we have widespread vaccination, effective herd immunity, people will start eating in restaurants again. People will start to travel again. There'll be some dislocations because we won't go back to exactly the same economy we had before. But, you know, after the after the last crisis, there were many people who were saying, oh, just those jobs are not coming back. Workers don't have the right skills. And they were totally wrong. It turned out that we were quite capable of getting back to full employment. And there's no reason to think that isn't true again. Do you think that when we get on the other side of this, that we do, you, you're optimistic, obviously, as you said, that we do have potentially a run in the economy, a run perhaps in the financial markets, just like we had after the financial crisis, which was kind of low and slow, but kept on going for a long time? Well, this one looks to me like a, a lot faster. Okay. And there were reasons that there was a combination of reasons why it was so slow last time. One of it was that this there was this legacy of excess household debt, uh, which is not the situation now. Another was that we had a lot of destructive fiscal austerity that was holding back the recovery. And, uh, the you know, those by-elections in Georgia made all the difference. It means that this time, and Democrats have learned the lesson. So now that they have, even if it's a razor-thin majority, they're, they're not going to make that mistake again. They're going to go for a big package. And so I, I actually think this is going to be a very different story. I, if you believe some of the projections out there about growth, uh, it's going to be, it, it really is morning in America style growth that we may be looking at. We may be looking at something like, the, you know, over fourth quarter on fourth quarter, six, seven percent. Uh, this is This is looking very, very different. Not at all the story. You know, don't don't fight the last war on this one. Well, you know, it's interesting. So with that optimism, do you think we still need a stimulus package? And I think I know the answer to it because I know you've been supportive of it. Do you still think we need more help? Yeah, so it's not a stimulus package. It's mostly just not what it's about. It's a, it's an economic rescue package. It is we have a miserable time. We won't be back to anything like full employment, even with all of this stuff, until early next year. And in the meantime, mass unemployment, uh, lots of disruption, many businesses in great, in, in terrible, under terrible stress, uh, the state and local governments, it's very uneven, but many of them are still in deep trouble. And it's all about getting people through this. Not there. There's no, it, it's gratuitous. We should not be having a lot of people suffering when we know that the economy 
is going to be coming back, when America is not poor, but a lot of individuals and a lot of businesses and some governments are very cash-strapped. So this is all about getting us through. This is a bridge. Mm -hmm. It's not a stimulus. It's a bridge across a chasm that we know is there, but we know is limited in, in, in width. Are you optimistic about the political will to get something this large done? I mean, even as you write in your book, Paul Krugman, in 21st century America, everything is political. This stimulus package certainly is one of those things. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's almost certainly. It's funny thing. The the stim the I, I hate calling it the stimulus package. The relief package is enormously popular. Has gigantic public approval. Relatively little disapproval. Even Republicans approve of it. And it will probably not get a single Republican vote in Congress. Right. There's a so serious disconnect the, there. There's a disconnect. The, the the partisanship of the professional politicians is enormous. It's absolutely. It, if it's if it's good for America and as a Democrat is in the White House, they're against it. And so it's going to be a party-line vote, but the, at the moment, uh, the Democrats you know, the Democrats have 50 senators plus Kamala Harris. They have a narrow majority in the House, and they are probably going to stay unified. There may be a, a few things that are shaved off because the most conservative Democrats don't want them, but it's not, it's, it's not going to be a modest package. It's going to be a really big thing all the same. Well, do you feel like some of those zombie ideas and zombie arguments are going to come out, which is what you write about in your book, uh, you know, some of those erroneous economic ideas that, in particular, you find the politicians kind of, you know, trotting out when they need it. So I'm just curious what you're getting ready for. Oh, well, we're, the, the uh, you know, debt, debt uh, fears, which sudden, didn't matter as long as, as Donald Trump was from the White House, are now back. Debt is an existential threat as long as there's a D after the president's name. Um, there are inflation. I mean, there there is a better case for thinking that we might have some inflation now than there was last time. But the the hyperinflation zombie is is back in full force, and other stuff too. I mean, I think we're witnessing the the birth of a new zombie. This whole thing in Texas, where you have you know the natural gas pipelines freeze, and and it's somehow or other wind power caused it. So that's a and don't don't believe that evidence will ever change that for. Uh, ten years from now, everybody on one side of the political spectrum will know that somehow it was the windmills that caused the the great freeze of Texas. So, no, the zombies. That's the thing about zombies. No matter how times, how many times you think you killed them, <laughs> they just keep on shambling along, eating our brains. So, I want to make sure I, I I get this. You're not concerned about inflation with a, and I'll use your term, relief package of this size. No, I mean it's it is a big package. It could very well get us pretty much to full employment. But when I do the arithmetic. And when I think about the risks, I, it, it, anyone who thinks that we're going to be, it's going to be 1979 all over again or something like that, it, the, the numbers just don't back that. We're, it, this is a big package. It is, for once, it looks like it might actually be big enough, but it's not big enough to produce something that is actually scary inflation. Well, and it's interesting, and I have someone actually tweeting at me, and they said, could you ask Paul if the Fed should start buying Bitcoin to pay off the national <laughs> debt? <laughs> God. I mean, uh, you know, the, the difference between Bitcoin and GameStop is that GameStop had the problem that there was an actual real business and a use for it, which meant that there was some tether to its value. Bitcoin, because no one actually uses it, it's purely speculative, <laughs> the sky's the limit. Well, what do you think ultimately happens? I mean, do you have you thought about, I don't know, five years? Are we still talking about Bitcoin? Is it now that it's through, what, 52,000? Is it 100,000? Like, do, what, are, what are your projections on how this plays out, Paul? I mean, I, I, have, I have this problem, which is that you know, 
the Bitcoin's been around. It's hard to believe how long it's been around, and it's still not actually money. People don't actually use it for any significant amount of transactions. On the other hand, it just floats out there. And you, a lot of the things you can say about the uselessness of Bitcoin, you can also say about gold. Mm-hmm. And gold has kept its value for you know for 5,000 years, despite basically being of very little real-world use. So maybe Bitcoin just hangs in there. Uh, I don't know. It's hard. To, it's hard to figure. I can't quite get into the psychology, but there it is. When you say hang in there, what do you what do you mean? Do you mean it becomes part of a balance sheet at corporations, like Tesla said last week, like Elon Musk said? Does it just hang out and and continue to rise? Uh, does it drop well, in value significantly? Not rise without limit. But maybe out there, maybe there'll be uh, Bitcoin at you name a price. It's completely arbitrary. There may be people who will continue to hold Bitcoin and say, well, Bitcoin is valuable because other people think it's valuable, and it's uh, and there, there's never a moment of reckoning. I mean, it, it's it, I mean, there's an alternative story where one day people we have a wily e. coyote moment. People look down, realize there's nothing supporting it, and it just crashes to, to earth. But, but you know, that hasn't happened so far, and it's been around for a while. So maybe, uh, who knows? I mean, it's it's one of those things where where I I, I don't know that it that it, it's hard to make any rational argument about where the price should be, and maybe because there's no rational argument, it can be anything. One thing I did want to ask you, going back to the economy, Paul, is, you know, new administration, but the four years of Donald Trump and his administration, what impact or lasting impact do you think that that had on the U.S. economy? Well, there was a lot of wasted time. I mean, you know, we, we, had, we spent uh, 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 whatever it was, I guess, uh, 208 weeks waiting for infrastructure week to actually happen, and it never did. Um <laughs> So we didn't do any investment in the future. But I think one thing we did learn, uh, Trump uh, ran really a quite stimulative fiscal policy. It wasn't efficiently stimulative, but we did have sustained budget deficits, and nothing bad happened as a result of those deficits. And we also learned that the economy could run hotter than people, a lot hotter than people had thought. I've looked back in 2015, the Fed thought, 4.8% 4.8% unemployment was full employment. And so we we learned that the economy has more room to run. And that's something that somebody else can, you know, it's something that Biden can can take advantage of, that discovery, and maybe actually use the, the running room to actually build some infrastructure, too. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's it's one thing to get back to full employment, but it's, it's another thing to tackle inequality in this country. And one thing that's happened and been laid bare during this pandemic has been the gap between the haves and have-nots has grown in, has grown even more than it was before. What is the best way to tackle inequality in the U.S.? Yeah, I think you have to do a just it's a you have to do a bunch of things. There's no single magic magic bullet. I mean, child child tax credits can do a lot because it doesn't take a whole lot of money to vastly improve the lots of the lives of millions of children. Um, minimum wage. Not sure we're going to get the $15, but a higher minimum wage helps. Uh, labor. I, one of the things sort of under the radar things is that the Biden administration is more pro-union organizing than any administration we've had in decades. And that might make a difference in terms of enhancing workers' bargaining power. Uh, and then there's other stuff. I mean, uh, I don't know if we're, whether an Elizabeth Warren wealth tax is, is anywhere in our near future, but you can make a start. There's certainly uh, there's no one thing. What you just need is, is a, a government, a Congress that that 
tries to improve the lot of people who are in the bottom half of the income distribution. And uh, we really haven't done that at all for a long time. So we might be surprised at how well it works if we finally start doing it. Are, are, are you concerned that a wealth tax would, would drive people out of the country, would drive the wealthiest out of the country? I think uh, it would be mean, a little bit. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that, uh, let's put it this way, uh, taxes are in, in New York City, which is where I spend most of my time. The tax rate on, on high-income people in New York City is considerably higher than it is in, uh, in, you know, in other parts of the country. And I don't see a lot of wealthy people uh, moving to Kansas. They're going to Miami. Uh, they're, they're going to Miami and, and no, Austin. They're going to Miami, but some, but, uh, but, but even that. I mean, the fact, there's some there's some mobility of people, but it's the yeah. idea that everybody is ready to move. Uh, there are a lot of things that matter in life more than your tax rate, and that that will continue to be true. Hey, listen, one thing I wanted to get your thoughts on, Paul, because we caught up uh, our David Weston uh, for this week's Wall Street Week, caught up with Larry Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, and they yeah. talked about the stimulus plan. You know, Summers. He's been critical, and I think his concern is, I was going to play some sound, but he cites you specifically, and he's concerned about people, I think you've talked about maybe people kind of shoring up their own finances, and he's concerned that that's not the best use of uh, any kind of relief package, COVID relief package. What do you say to that? Oh, I, uh, the, there are different parts of the relief package, and the part that's the most popular, which is the $1,400 checks, is also the least targeted. So some of that money will go to people who really badly need it, uh, but a lot of the money will go to people who have been doing okay in the pandemic. Um, and if we were short of money, I would worry about that. Mm. But we're not. The U.S. government can borrow at incredibly low interest rates. Debt is not a pressing concern. Um, Larry is, I understand. I mean, Larry is, <laughs> Larry is not stupid. Let's say, let's say that. <laughs> we, we, we actually had a debate on this uh, at the Princeton webinar last week. Um, and it's a... If people spend a lot of that, there is some risk of overheating. But I think the uh, the odds are that to the extent that we're giving a lot of money to people who are not urgently in need of it, they're also likely to not spend it right away. So there, I, I think it's, you know, if we had unlimited time to craft a very careful proposal and had unlimited ability to distinguish who really needed the money, then you could probably achieve what we needed with a somewhat smaller package. But that's not where we are. We need to get this mm-hmm. thing out the door now. And so I'm okay with it. So yeah, so okay, if some people save a little bit and shore up their finances, but you're thinking, I, you know, and I think I've heard, we've heard this a lot that if we overshoot it, it's okay, because there's a lot of people who are really hurting right now. Yeah, and we've had an object lesson in from from 2009 about what happens if you undershoot, which is you mm-hmm. don't get a second chance. That's a so, great, but yeah. that's a great point, right? We learned <laughs> in the financial crisis. Yeah, no, that's right. Occasionally, some of us, uh, you know, the zombies keep on shambling along, regardless. But some of us actually do, I hope, learn some lessons from from experience. Hey, Paul Krugman, did you get a chance to check out yesterday's testimony from the CEO of Robinhood and CEO of Reddit, CEO of Citadel, and more? I, you know, I read the accounts of it. I didn't uh, sit through and You know, I have to say, I just cannot get worked up about any of this. <laughs> Why not? Because, look, we have, a, we have a huge problem of inequality in the United States. We have a huge problem that ordinary people are not not getting enough and are not, are not don't have adequate uh, lifestyles. Uh, the way out of that is not for everybody to become a day trader. 
right? This is not. This is this is always going to be marginal, and the this whole stock trading thing. That there are no good guys in this story. I mean, the, obviously mm. the hedge funds are not lovable, but you know, putting a short squeeze uh, on 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 a hedge fund, even if it's done by a bunch of small investors, is also not a lovable thing to be doing. Uh, and people are complaining that. You know, that Robinhood stopped trading, but you know the people who were blocked from buying at that point actually, in many cases, were prevented from losing a lot of money because they would have been buying a GameStop at ridiculous prices. So, I but altogether, this is a like this is like a drama that involves mm-hmm. people and issues that I don't see why the rest of us should care about. But it does it does raise a point, which is that. In, regular people have access to financial markets now in a way that they have never had before yeah. with zero commission trading and and they can do what used to cost hundreds of dollars to do to make a single trade is that a good thing is it good to have that kind of access probably not in the end i mean i'm not going to say that it should be denied because we can't uh, it's a it's a free country and if if this can be done i, I don't want to be too paternalistic but the fact of the matter is that if you're an ordinary investor you should not be doing. You should not be stock picking. You should not be. You, you don't have the resources to figure that out. And the, uh, you know, what what all the personal finance experts tell you is buy index funds, do things that, you know, you should probably should be in the market some, but you should not be playing the market. And this is, so making that easier for people to do is actually not a good thing. So I want to squeeze in because I, I know we will have to ultimately go to the president, but I want to ask you about something in your book and you write. You know, in terms of things that are important, the most important thing is, and you say, sometimes I wonder whether I'm wasting my time talking about any other issue other than climate change. If we don't get that right, if we don't put policies in place, nothing else matters. That's right. If if the, if we really have climate change is potentially uh, a civilization destroying event. This is, and it's it, you know, I don't really care what productivity is if there's no civilization to be productive in, and so. Um, so that is the most important thing. Now, the 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 you know technology is our friend. Renewable energy has been uh, a miraculous story this past fifteen years, mm-hmm. and the, the the possibilities with actually fairly moderate policies to bring climate contra- climate change under control are huge. So that's something that we should be very um, excited about. But we have to do it, and of course we have to go around and. We have to be reasonable and not say somehow that windmills caused uh, natural gas pipelines to freeze. Right. That's you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, we saw it happen this week with the governor of, of Texas. Um, I, I, I do wonder in this political in this politically charged environment, what is an effective way to get the urgency of the climate change message across? Because there are a large number of people in Washington who do not think it's a priority. Yeah. Well, that's what that's what may doom us, and I don't know what what you can do except to try to make the case, and for those who who do have some power to do something about it, to uh, to use the levers they have. It's, I mean, we're luckily it turns out we it, there was a time when fighting climate change looked like a real kind of eat your spinach root canal thing that it was going to be extremely expensive and hard, and and it looked hopeless. Now it looks like just a fairly modest financial nudges towards. Uh, climate-friendly technologies can actually make all the difference. And maybe, just maybe, we can do that. Uh, We better hope so for the sake of, of the next few generations. 
Paul Krugman, if you were sitting down with the president uh, and his team or the president one-on-one -on -one and you said, hey, this is one economic policy you've got to get right right now, what would you say? Oh, I mean, right. I mean, they, I, I, I'm for, I guess we're not supposed to call the Green New Deal Build Back better, but I think a <laughs> kind of a combination of, of uh, infrastructure investment with a strong climate change focus is, yeah. is the way to go. That's right. how we're going to do it. Good stuff. Paul Krugman, thank you so much. His book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future, it is in paperback, and you can find it now. Paul Krugman, of course, New York Times columnist, Nobel laureate, and uh, thank you so much for all that time. What a great conversation. Yeah, it was fantastic. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Let's do the drive to the close and let's get to our next guest. And joining us once again, delighted to have him back with us, is Eric Jackson, founder president of the Toronto-based hedge fund. And he joins us once again on the phone in Toronto. Eric, how are you? Hey, Carol, I'm great. How are you? Doing okay, doing okay. How's this year stacking up for you? You guys, you had a great year last year. Does Are the trends and the momentum continuing for you? Uh, I would say uh, definitely off to a good start and um, pleased with uh, how things have worked out. Um, uh, you know, you have occasional days like yesterday and the day before where everything in tech seems out of favor and uh, people say uh, the world is ending and now's the time to jump back into value stocks. But um, I, I, I don't subscribe to that. I, I generally think we're, we're still in the early days of a long-term uh, secular bull market. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm sticking with uh, a lot of the positions that worked in 2020 uh, through 2021 and beyond. Okay, so we last had you on in, in December. Wrap up how EMJ Capital uh, performed it, uh, by the end of the year. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm not allowed to kind of quote um, my performance stats, uh, you know, chapter and verse, but uh, it was a very good year for, for sure. Um, we did very well. Um, I, I, you know, I think I attribute it to a, a few things. Uh, one, definitely we, we were very bullish starting the first week of April, uh, coming out of the, the, the woes of the, of the pandemic. Um, and then uh, also post-election, U.S. election, um, uh, you know, I, I had a very bullish bias that uh, you know things would would rally into the year end, and that's how things work. So um, mm. a lot of a lot of tech names did well, but um, you know some of my favorite names in the portfolio did particularly well. Yeah. Hey. So we just talked with Paul Krugman, Nobel laureate, and he's pretty optimistic. Um, you know, once we get through, I think what he says is still maybe another rough six months or so, but then pretty pretty optimistic about the outlook after there. So let's talk names like Zillow. You like it. I like it. I've loved it for a while. Actually, yeah. I, first, I first bought it a couple of years ago when it was $29. And one of the co-founders, Rich Barton, came back as CEO. Um, primarily, everyone kind of knows Zillow for, you know, going on the app and wanting to see what Tim's, the price of Tim's house is in, in Brooklyn or whatever, <laughs> uh, and kind of cre cre creep him. Um, but, uh, um, you know, Rich, the reason, one of the reasons why Rich came back, though, a couple of years ago is that they, were, they decided, you know, they had a choice. They had an existential choice. They had Open Door, which is now a public company, um, which, which I also own a small piece of, uh, but was really pioneering a, a model called iBuying, which basically was uh, they wanted to do to the home buying market what Uber has done to ride sharing, where they wanted to kind of get, a, get the middleman uh, of the or middle woman, uh, the real estate agent, out of the way. And actually, if you went on their site, you typed in your own um, address. Uh, they would say, well, here, here's your home, here's what its value is today, and we'll actually buy it from you today 
uh, we'll make you this cash offer of such and such a price. Um, and nobody had done that before, and, and Zillow had to decide, are we going to let Open Door take this and run with it, or are we actually going to try to use our market leader position uh, in this space to to be the, the dominant player in this space? And Rich decided he wanted to jump in with both feet, come back, take over uh, as CEO. Uh, there were a lot of skeptics at the time. There were, Steve Eisman was saying, you know, oh, this is a sign of another 2007 um, bubble in real estate, if, if uh, the Zillows of the world are getting into flipping houses. But I, I think it was uh, prescient. Um, and we're still in the early days of that whole model. But, you know, with each passing quarter and since the pandemic, uh, we certainly found that, uh, for one, one, real estate agents need Zillow more than ever uh, for leads. But um, more and more people are willing to dip their toes in the water of, of trying this new model. And I, I kind of liken it to Carvana, where you know, four years ago, nobody knew what Carvana was. Nobody, you know, they thought it was kind of weird, this idea of, like, buying cars online and having it, you know, shipped to your house or going and right. picking it up. Uh, but now it's – now, if we haven't bought a car ourselves through Carvana, we probably know somebody in our life who has done it. I don't think many of us know people who've yet pressed the button and sold their home on Zillow, but I think that a couple of years years from now we will, and that's the opportunity still in front of the company. We actually did a story for Business Week uh, back in, I think, early 2019. It's Zillow wants to flip your house, but it, it is interesting how they're making it a much easier easier process. Um, let's talk about another name. Yes, yeah, Sonos is one that I'm eager to hear from you about. Uh, the stock was at $6.58 back in March of 2020. It's now at $36.96. What's... Uh, why are you so excited about Sonos? It's kind of a value play in, in the tech world for me, um, Tim, because I think for, for a long time I was looking at this name. You know, everyone kind of, you know, either has a Sonos or, you know, had one at one point, likes, seems to like the company in a lot of ways. And yet its multiple was never very high, especially when you compared it to other, you know, prestige hardware companies like, say, a Logitech or a Garmin or somebody like that. Uh, and so, and I think the big reason why is people said, well, it's not a recurring business. You know, I buy one Sonos for my house. Right. And that's it. It's not like I'm hooked on it for life and I'm, and I'm going to. But you add to, to it, it from know. someone who is a Sonos owner, you keep adding. You get one for every yeah, room. No, no, no I, I, I totally agree, Carol. And, you know, that Full transparency. My and, 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 and my view was that, you know, I've held this stock for a couple of years now and for, for a long part of that time it hasn't really worked. But my view is that, you know, yes, it, it is a recurring business, and they have done some things in the last year, um, besides just like buying more hardware to, to, to add on to different rooms. Um, they now launched a, a radio service you can subscribe to on a monthly basis and things like that. Uh, and it, it's just even even with all the competition from Apple and you know Amazon mm-hmm. and and all these titans of tech, you know, it's still a dominant brand. So I think the opportunity in the year ahead and, and into next year is that. Is this going to get a multiple of, of a Logitech and a Garmin? And if it and if it does, and I think it's well on its way, and next month they're having an analyst day that I think should be a catalyst for the stock. I, you know, it's it's, it's had a great run. It's around thirty five bucks now, but I I like the stock to to go to. $90 over the next 18 months. Right. And it looks like they're coming out with headphones, too. That's been kind of all over um, social media. I mean, this this stock has been on a tear. So, I mean, investors are, are definitely, you know, excited about it. Um, God, I wish we had more time. Uh, can we just get like 20 seconds from you on Bitcoin? Everyone on Twitter is eager to ask me, ask you, for me to ask you about Bitcoin at $55,000 a coin right now. Are you thinking about adding it to your portfolio? Uh, I'm not. I, I, you know, I guess I'll put myself in the Ken Griffin camp. You know, I, I, it's hard for me to put a value on it. I say God bless. 
to everyone who wants to jump into it, uh, and my kids are among them. But, you know, for me, it's, it's not something I'm playing in right now. All right, you're there you Jeff. Have it. Thank you so much, Eric Jackson. Be well, founder and president of EMJ Capital. On the phone once again uh, from Toronto. Uh, really interesting in terms of the plays and the enthusiasm. Yeah, I still yeah. thinks there's a, a lot of a uh, lot of growth left in terms of of, of those growth stocks. Sonos up fifty seven percent already this year. Wow, this year. Wow, <laughs> after a run last year. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.